Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dave Ware, non-resident senior fellow and director of the Land Use Forestry and Agriculture Program here at RFF. Along with our colleague, Matt Wibbenmeyer, Dave has recently published some new analysis that seeks to improve the way that we account for carbon dioxide removals from the forest sector in the U.S. This might sound a little wonky, and it is, but it's also extremely important. That's because forests are the dominant tool we currently have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, and reaching net zero emissions targets will almost certainly include them. But how do we measure the emissions that forests remove? And how do we make sure that projects designed to remove CO2 really do what they claim? That's what we'll talk about in today's episode. Stay with us. All right, Dave Ware, my colleague at Resources for the Future. Welcome back to Resources Radio. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. So, Dave, we're going to talk today about uh, some new work that you've recently published with uh, our colleague, Matt Wibbenmeyer at RFF, about um, forestry and land use changes and effects on carbon dioxide removals. And um, it's, it's going to be a really fascinating conversation. Um, we usually ask our guests to introduce themselves uh, the first time they've been on the show, but you've been on the show before. Um, so we're not going to ask you to do that. We had you on, I think it was about a year and a half or two years ago, talking about wildfire management. That's right. Yeah. And since that time, you've um, joined us at RFF on a, on a full-time basis. So it's really great to sort of be working with you more regularly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be, to be doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. And my favorite part about talking and working with you, Dave, is that you live in Durham, North Carolina, where I grew up. So I, every time we talk, I get to hear about the latest and greatest happenings in the Bull City. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, let's dive into our subject matter, Dave. And um, as I mentioned, our conversation is going to revolve around this paper that you and Matt wrote, and that's called Land Use Change, No Net Loss Policies and Effects on Carbon Dioxide Removals. So if that doesn't make sense to the listeners, we're going to break it all down in the next 30 minutes or so. And of course, we'll have a link in the show notes to the paper so people can dig into the details. But let's start with two really basic questions. First, when we're talking about carbon dioxide removal or CDR, what role do forests and other vegetation play in the U.S. in terms of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere each year? And then second, um, have there been changes to that rate of CDR over time and why? Well, start by by um, pointing out that forests of the United States store an, you know, a vast amount of, of carbon in solid biomass. And and this, this carbon comes from... Um, basic photosynthesis um, as as forests absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and use it to to build biomass. Uh, if, if we looked at, at the standing inventory of carbon in forest today, it's about 52 times the, the annual emissions from the U.S. economy. Um, now, if, if we look at how that, that, that reservoir of carbon is changing over time, it's evolving at about 0.5 percent per year, uh, half a percent per year, um, and and that's that's the description of how fast that that reservoir is is growing. And so the growth in that reservoir is the amount of carbon that forests are extracting from the atmosphere in in every year. Half a percent doesn't sound like a lot, but across this vast inventory, that amounts to about 13 percent of U.S. emissions of uh, greenhouse gases uh, in, in any given year. So it is consequential. 
And as we look to the future, um, carbon dioxide removals are a really important part of strategies to reach um, net zero emissions, because clearly there are, there are parts of the economy that are very difficult to decarbonize and finding some way to, to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is really important. That's great. And um, one just kind of technical clarifying question, when you talk about forests, are you talking about just the sort of standing biomass, or are you also including carbon that might be stored in soils and other vegetation, you know, in and around forests? Yeah, following standard practice, we, we include the soil as, as well as the above ground and below ground vegetation. Okay, great. So um, let's talk now about the analysis that you and Matt carry out. And um, in the paper, you focus on like accounting protocols, which turn out to be really consequential. And um, you talk about two different kinds of accounting protocols for how to measure changes in the extent of U.S. forests and the, the carbon stocks that they um, hold. Can you tell us about those two accounting approaches? Um, and then we'll talk more about sort of which one is preferable in a couple minutes. Okay. Well, first I'll, I'll back up and talk a little bit more about carbon dioxide removals. So I, I mentioned, you know, that that, you know, the rate of change is about a half a percent per year. Well, if we break that down a little bit, you know, that's the net change. And the net change comes as the result of, of gains that are, are uh, accumulating to photosynthesis and the accumulation of biomass um, in forest lands. And, and losses are also constantly uh, occurring. And that can be um, emissions that are, are due to um, wildfire or to insect and disease outbreaks. There's also a set of carbon transfers uh, from, from forest into wood products and also emissions from harvesting. But then another and, and, and really critical part of this is land use change. So the amount of forest matters a lot. So, you know, in any given year, we have forest area that's being um, converted to some kind of developed use, or we have um, agricultural land that's being planted or otherwise regenerating the forest. So as we've looked at dynamics, understand that, that land use change is a really critical driver in determining what, what um, carbon dioxide removals occur in, in the land sector and specifically in forest in any given year. Now that said, um, how we account for um, land use change can have a big effect on our estimates of carbon dioxide removals. And especially as we are trying to project what carbon dioxide removals will be in the future, we need to account for how land use change is likely to affect our forest. And if we think about it, you know, one way to do it is just to track the amount of forest from year to year which is basically looking at net change. So if we, we have an accounting approach that just takes the, the area of forest over time um, and looks at net change, uh, we have one accounting approach. The other accounting approach, which is more detailed, is to account for where and how forest is lost to other uses and where and how forest is gained, um, both across space and time. And, and so, you know, this is important because there, you know, we, we, we have a lot of discussion of, of land use policy that goes to net loss objectives 
or it goes to specific afforestation and deforestation objectives. And we found um, in doing our analysis that there are some really important and consequential uh, differences in the results you get when you when you use those two different accounting rules. Right. Yeah. So take us take us a level deeper on that. You know what what are some of the implications of using those two different approaches? And and you make the case with Matt that one is sort of clearly preferable over the other. Yeah. And and um, in some ways this isn't surprising. It, it is that if if you use a net loss approach in an area where you're seeing a lot of gains and losses offsetting one another, you can overestimate the amount of, of carbon dioxide removals you're likely to get from that landscape. So regardless of where, where we apply this model across all the regions of the U.S., using a no net loss approach or a net loss approach, I, I should say, leads to um, a positive bias. Um, and, and, and that's a clear indication that you want to avoid using that kind of accounting to, to look at uh, carbon dioxide removals. Right. So, yeah, can you maybe like give us an example to help us um, kind of intuit that? So maybe like an example forest where, you know, part of it is being uh, changed and put into some kind of developed use, whereas, you know, biomass is growing in some other part of the forest. And yeah, can you just sort of talk us through the not the math necessarily, but the sort of intuition for, for why this makes sense. I mean, the intuition is this. It is that, you know, there is a reservoir of, of carbon on a given forest area. When that, when that forest area is uh, you know, bulldozed for development, that, that carbon is lost to the atmosphere. And so the emissions of carbon from, from that loss are, are much greater than the gains in carbon, at least in the early years, the gains in carbon from a newly planted forest area. So, um, so I mean, that's, that's the underpinning of all of this, is that you, you need to account for how each of those mechanisms generate some kind of net emission, whether that be a negative emission, which is sequestration of carbon, or positive emission, which is um, uh, an exchange that, that leads to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. Yeah. So like in that example, the area that's bulldozed um, is, you know, replaced by some new planting elsewhere. So that's a no net loss in forest land, but there are still, you know, um, emissions because the carbon that you lost from the bulldozed area is greater than the carbon that you've sequestered in the newly planted area. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Great. So um, you and Matt also... Um, examine some of the carbon dioxide removal implications um, looking towards the future using these different types of accounting approaches. Can you talk about some of those projections and what they tell us about um, yeah, how CDR might play a role in the decades ahead in the U.S. forest sector? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I should probably point out that this is the second paper that, that that Matt and I have have written on this topic of of carbon carbon dioxide removals from the land sector. Um, in, in the previous paper, we we spend a lot of time looking at at specific projections of carbon dioxide removals. Now, carbon dioxide removals in the forest sector are substantial and consequential, I would argue, um, but they've also been declining over time. Over the last thirty years, the rate of of removal has declined by about 10%. If we take a business as usual 
um, future, you know, over the next 40 years, we would expect the rate of carbon dioxide removal to decline another 20%. Um, and that's largely because forests in the United States are getting older. You know, we, we have, we've had a fairly young age class distribution of, of forests, especially in the Eastern United States, where most of the um, carbon sequestration occurs. And, and as those forests have aged to, to uh, a certain, to a certain point, the rate of carbon dioxide removals has been declining. And so we expect that to continue moving forward. If we, if we begin to play out the differences between these accounting approaches, the, the, um, the rate of, of carbon dioxide removals that would be, that would be estimated if we used a, a net loss accounting approach would be 50% higher than what we see uh, by accounting for um, both afforestation and deforestation. Right. Yeah, so there are clear implications here for policy and also for international accounting to bodies like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, and, and the Paris Agreement. Is that right? That's true. And I should point out that the U.S. does a good job of accounting for you know, the, the detailed dynamics of historical change. You know, I, I think it's especially important for um, how we build out our expectations for, for net emissions moving forward. Um, CDR or carbon dioxide removals are expected to play an important role, and we need some realistic expectations about what, um, what the land sector can continue to provide. Uh, right now, our projections indicate that um, we would have less less carbon benefits from the land sector than, say, our our um, U.S. strategy for net zero anticipates. Um, so, if we have less carbon dioxide removals, then we need to we need to accomplish more emission reductions in other parts of the the economy. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting, and I, you know. Uh, it makes me wonder how much um, you're engaged with policymakers on this question. Are you sort of talking to the folks at EPA or USDA or, or wherever else sort of these accounting protocols are actually being implemented? Well, we're in the process of building out our models. And as we go, we've been involved with a community of modelers and policymakers who um, who need to understand these uh, these outcomes. Yeah, great. Once again, RFF research, you know, it's it's detailed and it's high quality. And it's an academic uh, work, but it's also informing the real world. So, so that's great. So, Dave, one thing that you and Matt talk about in the paper is regional variation. And I think it'll be intuitive to people that there are different types of forests uh, across the United States with different ages and species. And, you know, they're affected by factors that vary regionally. Can you talk a little bit about that regional variation and how it plays into this question of carbon dioxide removals? Sure. Um, you know, if we look at the uh, the forests of the United States, there are some really important differences, you know, on either side of the 100th meridian um, and, and at finer grain across across the landscape. Dave, I'm sorry to interrupt, but for the geographically challenged among us, uh, including <laughs> myself, what's the 100th meridian? Well, let's just say east and west of the Great Plains. Got it. Um, if we look at the eastern United States, We've uh, we've benefited from a century of 
reforestation in this in this region and forests are relatively young um, and this is where the lion's share about 80 percent of forest carbon sequestration occurs in the eastern United States um, we expect that that's that share is going to increase to at least 90 percent um, in the in the coming decades if we look to the west uh, we see really fairly old forests um, that are being impacted by um, wildfire in, in many places so that we've seen forests in the western part of the of the United States actually move from being a small um, sink or are uh, producing net carbon dioxide removals to being a source of carbon emissions as those forests adjust through wildfire and land use change. So there's some really important regional differences that we need to pay attention to in terms of, of building out policy. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it makes me think of another question that is almost certainly an entire podcast unto itself, which is um, when we think about projecting future CDR in these Western forests that are you know, exposed to wildfire risk, how much confidence do we have in our ability to make those projections given the sort of, from my lay perspective, the you know rapid increase in in extreme wildfires in the western U.S. and parts of Canada. Well, I mean that's that that introduces a a, a certain amount of uncertainty, um, for sure. Um, I would say that in most cases the the wildfire crisis is driven by overstocked stands. In other words, fire suppression has has largely eliminated fire from its natural role in forests, so you have more carbon dioxide perhaps than can be sustained. So one way to look at this period might be that we're in the process of adjusting those those carbon reservoirs in western forests to to a more appropriate level, and that's going to involve some some net emissions. Now the big question is how climate change interact with with those forests and in determining what the ultimate sustainable level of carbon storage would be. Um, and, and I think that's a, it's a really important part of, of looking at our wildfire strategies is trying to, to manage or maybe mitigate the emission signature of, of our fuel treatments and of our, you know, our difficult, uh, challenges of, of, of negotiating, this change. Yeah. And, and for listeners who are interested in learning a little bit more about our approaches to managing wildfire, I would just point folks to the previous conversation that we had, Dave, um, a year and a half or two years ago, and, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes too. So um, one more policy question. Um, we've already talked about a couple of policy issues. Um, it seems clear from this work that you know using a net change approach in accounting is you know not the right way to go. Can you talk about some other policy uh, implications that you and Matt draw from this work? Well, if you look under the hood of this of this big modeling effort to to try to get at accurate projections of of change and carbon dioxide removals, it's clear that the benefits of avoided deforestation are greater than the benefits of new afforestation over the next 40 years in every eco-region in, in the U.S. Now what that says is that um, effective policy addressing land sector carbon should be as focused on, on 
avoiding deforestation, you know, sort of minimizing the, the land use footprint of, of additional development, as well as incentivizing afforestation or, or building out those kinds of nature-based climate solutions moving forward. Mm-hmm. And is that just because when we're planting new trees, those trees are just physically so small that they're not sequestering a large amount of carbon until they're maybe 40 or 50 years older, or are there other dynamics going on there? You know, that's, that's essentially the, you know, the idea that's driving this. It, it is that at least in the, the immediate or, or uh, medium run future, um, it takes a while to, to recapture any kind of, of forest loss from development in a new forest. And, and so, you know, given the time frame of our, our climate commitments and, uh, you know, the rapidity of climate change, there, it's an important consideration. Right. Right. So I've managed to very slowly get to the uh, very simple point that trees grow slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. So, Dave, one other question that I uh, can't resist asking you, and this is a little bit off topic, but um, but it sort of connects. It's about um, the role of uh, forestry offsets, uh, which listeners have have certainly heard about. And there's been, you know, there, I feel like there's always news stories about forest carbon carbon offsets and you know problematic examples of them. But there was a new kind of round of them maybe a month ago or so, and there was a story in the New Yorker that I read that. Um, uh, I'll pull the name up in a second, but the story uh, is all about uh, a company that was, you know, developing a very large uh, carbon offset project in East Africa, and you know the reporting was pretty compelling, including you know getting quotes from some of the project like developers that a lot of the carbon offsets that companies were purchasing on the back of this uh, forest project were you know mostly hot air that. Um, that is that you know these carbon offsets were really not actually offsetting much uh, carbon at all um the name of the article was the great cash for carbon hustle um which kind of gives you a flavor for the, the the tone of the piece but i'm just curious if you can talk about this issue a little bit how concerned are you about these potentially you know hot air type projects and then how concerned are you that like that the reputation of forests as a useful tool in our carbon toolbox just are getting this really potentially bad reputation. Well, you know, I'll start with just the general observation that um, we know that we need carbon dioxide removals uh, to get to net zero. As I mentioned earlier, you know, they're just parts of the economy that are very difficult to decarbonize. And, 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 we're anticipating that, you know, technology will begin to deliver some scalable um, approaches to carbon capture and storage and, and effective CDR. But in the meantime, uh, forest and the land sector is the only mechanism for, for withdrawing or, or capturing carbon from the atmosphere and generating CDR. Uh, we know through through this modeling effort and others that it is possible to grow that sink um, from uh, some kind of baseline level. Uh, that that it can be grown in a consequential way and generate some benefits uh, for society. And we face this this conundrum of well, how do you incentivize that? You know, what mechanisms do you use? Do you use some kind of command and control? 
you know, some uh, policy approach at the federal level that actually generates that that benefit through additional afforestation, you know, whether that be through subsidized tree planting or or some other uh, tax incentive or or subsidy, or or do you use the the you know the the, the private sector to to uh, to generate these these benefits and 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 you know that article in the New Yorker uh, is a case study of some fairly egregious behavior by some some early some early efforts to capitalize on on the demand for for carbon offsets uh, you know. I think there are lessons to be learned from it. At the same time, I know that there's an awful lot of really good work going on, um, especially in the forest sector, about how to generate verifiable, um, transparent, um, and useful credits. Uh, that that is encouraging to me. You know, we've we've come through perhaps a, you know the the wild west period of carbon offsets, and now we're we're moving towards something with some really hard-nosed science and hard-nosed accounting behind it. Right. And, and that's exactly the work that, that, you know, you and Matt and, and many others are, are doing so that we can have verifiable um, CDR in the forest sector. So that's really important. I'm curious, uh, just last question, Dave, before we go to the top of the stack about this reputational issue. When you talk with people sort of outside of you know, the research community who kind of know, understand the ins and outs of accounting and, and maybe the progress that's been made in recent years. Do you encounter a lot of skepticism with regard to uh, CDR in the forest sector? And do you think that it might be difficult to kind of rehabilitate the reputation of forest uh, CDR projects? I hope not. Um, I, I, As I talk to, to people, especially in the forest sector, I, it seems that we're, we're moving toward... Um, you know, good, verifiable, um, solid, transparent credits and offsets. Um, you're getting at a really important element of 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 the the question, and that is how do how do we maintain um, the social license to to pursue this this avenue for uh, generating climate benefits? Yeah. And it's going to be really interesting to watch it play out uh, in the years ahead. And, and hopefully the work that you and Matt and others are doing can maybe rehabilitate some of that um, some of that reputational risk that comes when spotty stories like this come, come in the New Yorker. Um, well, Dave Ware uh, from RFF, this has been a really fascinating conversation. It's, it's technical, but it's so interesting and so important. Um, I really appreciate you explaining it to us. Um, we'd love to close out the conversation now with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you've read or watched or heard. It could be any kind of media. Um, it could be related to the environment or, you know, maybe just loosely related to the environment. We're pretty flexible around here. Um, so what's at the top of your stack, Dave? <laughs> well, I'm staring across the room at the stack, which is a little too tall right now. Uh, but I, I've, lately been rereading some some conservation uh, essays from the past things like Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac uh, but especially Wallace Stegner's writing about living in the in the western US and the the limits of um, of climate and um, and topography on 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 living in the West 
um, and just just uh, sort of stimulating some thought about the land ethic and how to contemplate the land ethic in in an era of of climate change. One thing that's uh, especially interesting to me is as I read Stegner, who's writing in the 70s and 80s about life in the West, it's focused on aridity and the the limits of water or limits imposed by water. Uh, and it doesn't mention wildfire. Uh, I have to believe he'd be talking about wildfire if he was writing today. Yeah. Well, Dave, this has, um, again, been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org slash donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.